Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from the Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is a re-release of an episode originally produced for the 2022 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. Our guest interviewer for this episode is Molly Thurston. A lot of you know Molly from the organic community in BC. She's an orchardist and orcharding consultant, and she's been quite active with Organic BC over the years. But you also might remember her from last year's podcast series in which she interviewed an academic called David Granitstein. It ended up being a really popular episode in the series, and so we invited David to attend our live online session later in the year so that some of you could ask him questions. And one of the themes that emerged from that Q&A session was challenges with coddling moths. So for this year's interview, Molly decided to seek out another academic who could speak specifically about challenges with coddling moth in the orchard. Well, Molly found a pretty good expert. His name is Dr. Matthew Greesop, and what you're about to hear is a long-form conversation between Molly and Matthew about all things coddling moth. We're going to start with their bios, and then Molly will take it away. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I will talk to you later on. Hi, I'm Molly Thurston. I'm an organic orchardist in Lake Country, BC, and a tree fruit horticulturalist with Pearl Agricultural Consulting. Hello, everybody. My name is Matt Grishup. Until recently, I served as the organic pest management specialist at Michigan State University, where I work pretty extensively with organic apples, cherries, blueberries, and other specialty crops. In late January of 2022, I'll be leaving that position and starting as the director of the new Cal Poly Organic Production Research and Education Center. Uh, this is a brand new center that will initially focus on organic vegetable production, but I'm sure we'll get back to fruit at some point. It's a great honor to be asked to um, be part of this interview today. So I'm very excited today to have our guest, Dr. Matt Grishup. He is joining us uh, from Michigan State University, where he's an associate professor in the Department of Entomology. So welcome, Matt. Thank you very much, Molly. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, we're really excited to speak with you today uh, because of your expertise in coddling moth. Uh, last year, just to give you some context, our podcast series uh, covered some other orchard topics uh, with Dr. David Granitstein. But after we'd had a great discussion about orchard floor management, a lot of questions came in about coddling moth management. And particularly for our small organic growers, um, many of whom are also growing some palm fruits in their backyards, there was a lot of interest in how do you manage coddling moth? Um, how do you take care of your perhaps small orchard and, and just get the best production going? So I'm really excited uh, to have that conversation with you. And I just wanted to start off with maybe a little bit about your background and how did you get into this field? Oh, okay. Well, um, I've been involved in agricultural research extension and education for the last, um, I, I would say, 20 years or so. When I did my undergraduate studies, um, I got involved with the agroecology program at University of California at Santa Cruz. And, you know, I had a real wonderful opportunity to work in actually orchard systems to begin with, um, but also in organic cotton systems, strawberries and artichokes. And I was working with an entomologist by the name of Sean Swayze. He was my undergraduate mentor. 
And so I got to work on biological control, mating disruption, and, and really got exposed to a whole host of organic production issues at that time. And I guess that really set the hook for me. And so um, sort of moving on from there, I've pursued uh, largely biological control. Um, but um, as the years went on, I've gotten more into behavioral pest management and even some you know, chemical pest management. Um, I've had a very interesting history, I, I think, um, in that I've worked in biological control and rangeland weed systems for invasive weeds. Um, I've worked in stored product physical pest management, so using mostly uh, thermal controls for stored grain, um, biological control in stores and warehouses, um, mating disruption research, of course, um, and then since I've been at Michigan State University, a whole host of projects um, spanning um, systems in greenhouses to vegetables to um, a variety of fruit crops. Um, in recent years, I've spent a lot of time working on spotted wing drosophila, which of course is, you know, for small and delicate fruit producers, uh, really the, it's been the game-changing um, component in that system, I'd say. I, th I think I can say that. I suppose climate change is even bigger. Um, but um, but you know, one of the fun things about what I do at Michigan State University is uh, we have very diverse agricultural systems here. So I get to work um, with all kinds of farmers in all kinds of systems. Thanks a lot, Matt, for that intro to your background because boy, it sounds like you've really covered a lot of really interesting areas of pest management there. And I'm really glad that you mentioned spotted wing drosophila because I do think that has been a game changer, especially in British Columbia where we're growing cherries, peaches, raspberries, blueberries. So certainly another pest of great importance. And I hope that we can maybe circle back to a couple of um, the things specifically on that that you're working on. But uh, you mentioned some interesting pieces there as well. You mentioned mating disruption, mm -hmm. as well as biocontrol. And I wondered if maybe you could give us like a really short definition of what those two um, components of pest management are. Oh yeah, no problem. So biological control um, in its broadest sense is when we um, use one living organism to manage another. And most often when we think about biological control, um, that relationship would be, you know, probably sort of a predatory one where you've got one creature that's eating another. But in fact, it can be much broader than that. It could be that one creature is um, competing with another. And in fact, when we think about microbial control of microbial pests, so uh, pathogens, oftentimes biocontrol is achieved by um, colonizing space. So for instance, the um, yeast products that are being sold for organic management of fire blight, that's a biological control. It's a yeast that colonizes the stigma on the apple flower and keeps Erwinia amaryllovia, the uh, causal uh, bacterium of fire blight from being able to you know, get up, establish a beachhead or a foothold and then you know, move into the plant's tissues and cause all the fun that fire blight does. Um, so that's biological control. And I, can, I, I could talk about it for a long time, but um, I'll, I'll let you ask questions. Um, so in terms of mating disruption, mating disruption is really a form of what I would call behavioral pest management. And um, mating disruption is most commonly um, achieved when we have an insect system where one sex produces a pheromone um, that attracts the other sex. 
And most often it's the females. And so you can kind of, a uh, grower that I, I work with quite a bit likes to call it like, you know, Chanel number nine. He remembers being a teenager and there was the one gal in his class who wore Chanel number nine. And he could, he always knew when she entered the room because he could smell her. And it's kind of the same thing. So for instance, coddling moth, which we're going to talk about today, I guess, um, the females produce um, this pheromone and it's really useful for them because if you think about it, a little tiny moth in a big orchard, you know, how do you get together to make babies? And for coddling moth, it's even more sort of complicated or important that they find each other quickly because the adults only live about four days. Um, they, they age faster if it's hotter, they age slower if it's colder, but four days is a pretty good sort of um, estimate of, of their lifespan. And really their reproductive um, fertility peaks at somewhere between day one and two. And so the pheromone allows the female to be tracked by the male so that he can find her, they can mate and, and you know, create the next generation or, or problem for us. So the way mating disruption works is we essentially monkey wrench that communication system. So you can think of it as adding a lot of static to a video picture or something like that. Um, we put so much, uh, we, we isolate this pheromone, we synthesize it in the laboratory, we produce it in factories, and then we put it out across the orchard. Um, and there's a variety of ways you can do that. And essentially it puts that very rare signal in a very common place. So the males can no longer find the females. And so it disrupts mating in, in fact. Um, so that's, that's mating disruption. Now, I mean, theoretically, um, you know, if, if you were dealing with a, a, an insect or an organism that used a lot of visual cues and you could, you know, monkey wrench that behavioral system, that would be mating disruption as well. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Um, pretty much all the examples I can think of are, are you know, pheromone systems. No, that's great. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're able to explain the how pheromones work for coddling moth because I think it leads a lot into my next question which is around the the general biology of coddling moth I'd love if we could go into the life cycle because Absolutely. when it comes to control understanding the life cycle is super important yeah so um Codling moth, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep the Latin and Greek to a minimum, but I, I am an entomologist, so I'm going to get a little technical. But I'll, well, let's I'll use the Latin. As well. <laughs> so uh, codling moth is um, a moth, which comes from the order Lepidoptera. And so all moths are what we like to call holometabolous. Um, and, and that's a big fancy word for saying that they have complete metamorphosis, which I'm guessing most of the listeners at some point in grade school you know, got to talk about the stages of a butterfly. So it goes from an egg to a larvae, to a pupa, to an adult. And the adult is the moth, the caterpillar is the larvae, and the pupae is the, you know, we call them a chrysalis for butterflies. We just call them pupae for moths, typically. So coddling moth follows that general life cycle. So uh, the females lay an egg. That egg, in the case of coddling moth, hatches into uh, what we call a neonate or a uh, first instar or first stage larva. And that larva basically tracks around. It's usually laid on a leaf or maybe on an apple. It tracks around looking for an apple. Once it finds an apple, it takes a bite out of it and bores into the apple. Um, most insects are very interested in finding protein. In nature, carbon is cheap, nitrogen is expensive, or carbon is common, nitrogen is rare. So that's why oftentimes coddling moths move right for the seeds in an apple. Once they're inside the apple, they go through a series of larval stages. And for coddling moth, there are five. 
So there's the first stage when it hatches and then it molts um, four more times um, to get to that fifth stage. So once the codling moth has gone through its um, five stages or it's at its fifth stage, one of two things can happen. Um, the codling moth can leave the apple. And if you find an apple that has a circular shot hole in it, like it got hit by a BB or a twig or something like that, that's likely what's happened. Or sometimes the codling moth will stay in the apple, especially if the apple falls off the tree. So the next stage in the codling moth life stage or life cycle is pupation. And so after completing those five stages, it then goes into a pupae, and that's when metamorphosis happens, and the adult is is that you know then emerges. Now that's that's the life cycle in general of codling moth. Um, however, it's a little bit more complicated in that we typically have multiple cycles in a year. So if we want to think about the um, overall season-long cycle of codling moth, you have to start thinking about how the different cycles fit into the seasons. And it's not completely straightforward. There, there are a couple of places where I think people get confused. So the first of these, and for folks living in, in the northern latitudes, like in Canada or Michigan or New York or Washington State, you've got to think about, okay, where do these moths spend the winter? And at what stage do they spend the winter? And the answer to that is actually at that fifth larval stage. So codling moth that don't quite make it to pupation in the summer will hang out in that fifth larval stage and they spin up little cocoons, um, sometimes on the trunks of apple trees, um, oftentimes on, on other sort of detritus and trash in the orchard, old bin boxes, tin cans, um, all kinds of things. And uh, basically they kind of go into insect hibernation or diapause. So the way they know to go in, into diapause is actually if a codling moth larvae experiences a day length of less than 15 hours while it's going through those larval developmental stages, it decides to go to diapause. Um, the, the sort of uh, rationale for that being that by the time they get to become adults, there won't be any apples for them to lay eggs on. So then, you know, they're gene line is, is dead or gone. So they overwinter as this fifth end star. Um, during the winter, just like trees, they basically need to accumulate cold units or be vernalized to know when to wake up. Because obviously, again, if you know, at the first warm snap, you wake up, uh, pupate, turn into a moth and it's 10 degrees C out, it, it's not gonna go very well for you. So they accumulate cold units. And then once they've accumulated enough cold units, they begin to respond to heat again. And as it warms up, they go from that fifth larval stage to a pupae to an adult. Um, they emerge, fly around the orchard, have sex, lay eggs, and, and the cycle, you know, renews itself. Now in the northern climates like British Columbia, Washington, Michigan, we typically have two generations per year. So that first generation is actually seeded from the year prior. Um, those are the fifth instar or the fifth stage larvae that decided not to, to go to full development because they experienced a short day length. So those come out, they lay eggs, and then that generation will spawn a second summer generation um, always. And something that's kind of interesting in the era of climate change, we could actually get to a third generation. Because basically, if you could go through the entire cycle, if you if basically the second cycle of moths are around as larvae and they get to pupae without experiencing that short day length, you're just going to get another wave of moths. Yeah, and that's really interesting, Matt, because we in British Columbia a couple of years ago with a really hot summer, 
started to see indications that a third generation was showing up near the border with Washington. And so I guess that really is a risk as we go forward and perhaps um, increase temperature. What are those triggers that are going to create that third generation? So it really just comes down to heat accumulation. And it's already happened in parts of California where they've seen more generation. So this is in walnut growing country where they, you know, they don't have a hard winter, but they've actually seen the addition of one or two generations in some regions. In Michigan, Washington, New York, um, and I would assume British Columbia, um, I don't know if we've ever seen the addition of a full third generation, but whether or not the codling moth completes its life cycle, um, once it's a larva and it's in your apple, it's kind of done the harm it's going to do to your production system. So it's, it's a little bit of an academic question. Um, The other real, really sort of scary thing about an increasing number of generations with any insect is that um, insect populations follow a geometric increase function, right? So, and it's a pretty simple thought experiment to think about it. If you just think about, okay, I've got a female codling moth, say she can lay 100 eggs, which is not a bad estimate. 50 of those are going to be female, 50 of those are going to be male, right? Well, if all 50 of her, her daughters survive, their next generation is going to have 250, right? Oh, I'm sorry, 2,500, 50 times 50, right? Yeah. And then it just gets really nasty from there on out, um, like any kind of geometric you know, population increase. For sure. So it's adding, like an exponential explosion exactly. of so population. Adding a third generation is not like just adding a, you know, a few more codling moth. It's adding 50 times more codling moth, potentially. You can, you can think of it that way. Well, that's um, pretty other, scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. The other issue is that if we have uh, a late generation of codling moth, our apples are, you, you know, you're, you're almost to the end of the season. I mean, you're to that point where, okay, it's time to harvest. Um, and so, you know, you're losing even uh, more value essentially uh, because you've, you've already invested everything you were going to invest that full season long. And then you get this nice, happy event at the end when you get chewed up by a codling moth. So Matt, with the overwintering population, you've got the codling moth spun up in the cocoons in that fifth instar. Where is there an opportunity there for growers to try to get some control and get ahead of that pest for the next season? Um, you know, historically, um, that was actually one place where people focused codling moth management before we had synthetic organic insecticides um, and, and the sort of movement of pest management in that direction. Um, I would say that, um, you know, if you're an organic practitioner, you know, good sanitation and environmental habitat management should always be something you think about. Um, and really for codling moth, uh, you know, what it really comes down to is, you know, especially that, you know, fruit at the end of the season, like, um, drops and falls, don't leave them there, get rid of them. Um, because some of those may have late instar codling moth that are going to go look for a place to pupate. So if you can intercept those, you may be able to push back on next year's population a little bit. Um, smooth bark trees, um, we think probably are, you know, have a little, I don't like to say it's not true plant resistance to an insect, but they don't provide the habitat like a real craggly barked, like an old, you know, red delicious or something that's got all those big deep divots in it. That's, that's sort of ready-made habitat for a codling moth to spin up in. Um, keeping, you know, bin boxes out of your orchard. Um, there was actually been some work looking at sterilizing bin boxes with hot water and steam treatments, things like that. Um, 
keeping your orchard, uh, you know, keeping branches and things that an insect could spin up on out of your orchard is, is also really important. Um, work that's been done looking at, you know, the survival of codling moth when they're in contact with the soil over winter tends to show that they really don't uh, do very well um, under, under those conditions. There's just too many microbes and things that like to eat them essentially if they're in contact with the soil typically. But if they can get up above the soil on, um, you know, the trunk of the tree, or again, on a, you know, if you've got a big branch laying in the orchard or a bin box, even a tin can or something, um, you know, they're much less likely to get picked off by things that want to eat them. Um, so sanitation is really good. Another thing that you can do and was a traditional codling moth um, management tactic, tactic of the past is to use burlap or you can use corrugated cardboard and band your trees with that. And so basically you want to do that. I would say I probably wouldn't go after the first generation of codling moth. I'd go for the overwintering one because you've got more time to get them because once they've spun up, they're going to be there for six to nine months. Um, so what you do is you put bands out on, on the base of your trees. And then um, once uh, you know, you're done with harvest and maybe you're doing your cleanup, you collect those and then freeze them, burn them, squish them, you know, destroy them. Um, and you know, one thing I used to do uh, when I worked at Washington State University and was a postdoc, I used to have to go collect um, codling moth out of orchards using bands like that. So we'd have stuff to work with in the laboratory in the in the fall. So it, it really works. Um, it's not, but none of these tactics are going to provide you the level of control that, um, you know, modern mechanized pest management is going to. Um, but that said, they can have a pretty, they can have a appreciable impact on, on the population. I'm glad you mentioned those things, Matt. I, I like you, I've also collected a number of bands over the years for research purposes. But just to describe for our listeners, I mean, I generally think of this as about a, a four inch or six inch uh, piece of card, corrugated cardboard, where we put the rough side on the inside of the tree, so that the larva will spin up in between the grooves. And kind of height above the soil, like are you usually sort of a foot above the soil or... Yeah, it depends on the trees. You know, I don't know if I've ever really tried banding modern high density trees. I think everything I've banded have been freestanding, either, you know, vertical axe um, or, or old traditional, you know, maybe not standards, but, but, you know, big, big trees. So yeah, I'd say, you know, between 10 to 14 inches, you know, and uh, what we always used to use was a, a hammer stapler to, to affix the bands to the trees. I mean, it's a little, it's a little bit of damage to your tree, but it's, it's on those bigger trees. It's probably not a big deal. Um, I might be a little more careful on a, if you're on an M9 or a B9 rootstock or something like that, you might want to figure out another way. Um, it is an effective way of eliminating some of that larva, as you say, and uh, you also mentioned, you know, cleaning up the dropped fruit and the sanitation in the orchard. And so in terms of, um, you know, mowing the orchard, trying to destroy that particular fruit, that's, that's certainly one method. You, you had some interesting uh, research about using livestock to clean up some of that dropped fruit. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, I can't, um, claim credit for the idea. Um, the idea of uh, mixing livestock into orchards is is probably as old as orchards themselves. Um, there are old um, 
don't know what to call them, trade articles, I guess, from the 19th century and prior. Uh, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson um, talks about grazing cows and hogs in orchards um, at, at Monticello. Um, so the basic concept is, you, you know, uh, cows, hogs, horses, sheep, um, you know, they're, they're foraging all the time and fallen apples are you know, delicious. So, so they're, they're going to pick them off and eat them. So uh, the research that we did really focused around hogs. Um, and that was a lot of that was uh, because of a grower, uh, Jim Cohn, we were working with, it was an idea he had, and um, we had access to hogs. Um, like most things, the devil's really in the detail. So I would say that, again, if you, if you've got standard trees, so, you know, giant, you know, 20 meter tall trees, it's really easy to integrate livestock in with them because those trees are really strong and tall and the fruit's not low to the ground. Um, as you move into smaller and smaller stature trees, it gets more and more complicated. Um, what we found was that in, in um, higher density orchards, um, feeder pigs, so these would be pigs at about um, you know, less than 50 pounds or 20 kilos, um, grazed you know, at, at you know, I don't know, 12 to 24 an acre, uh, for about a week at a time, we're really good at cleaning up drops. Um, we did some other research with large hogs in um, pears, apples, and tart cherries up in northern Michigan, where we use them solely for post-harvest management. And we did see reductions in insects um, in subsequent years um, by using them. And, you know, when, while the animals are in there, you know, they're going to be feeding on whatever they can feed on. And, you know, they you don't have to pay them because that's what they want to do. Um, so you're giving them a chance to exhibit their, their natural behaviors. One really interesting thing that we found uh, with the work with the feeder hogs in a moderate density orchard was that we got really good uh, weed control under the orchard, under, under the trees with the hogs as well, because they, um, they like to root. I mean, that's sort of their natural inclination. Where we had really well-established turf, um, it was pretty hard to root. But under the trees where the trees are, you know, there's light competition between the, the grass and, and herbs um, underneath the trees and the trees themselves, um, they're able to actually work into that. And, and um, they do a really nice job of just sort of turning over that top layer of soil and, and feeding on weeds and roots and everything else and keeping stuff clean in there. I wanted to circle back to codling moth, Matt. Um, we're still in the fall. We've been talking about, you know, some of the fall control. Um, quick question about sprayable nematodes. This is a, a new technique, uh, new to us, maybe not new in terms of, you know, what's out there in the world, but um, there's a couple suppliers locally who are making available these sprayable nematodes. How would that work in terms of codling moth production? Oh, sorry. Yeah. How would that work in terms of codling moth control? <laughs> Interestingly enough, there's been a long history of, of folks knowing that there's been a relationship there. Um, I think the it, it comes down to scalability again. I mean, we I did some work out here in Michigan um, with a graduate student, and we looked at a variety. I think we looked at three different um, entomopathogenic nematodes at field scale. And so, so in, you know, orchard blocks of an acre or more, and essentially we could never really see an appreciable effect. Um, and the other side of it was there's no way the grower would have done it without us providing the nematodes because it was about, oh, at the time, I think it was 250 or $300 an acre per application. 
Oh, wow. That's significant. Yeah. They're not cheap. I mean, to get out there at like a billion per acre, which is sort of the target you're, you're going for because they, you know, they don't, they don't really hang around. I mean, if they don't, you know, it's sort of like you, if you put a billion nematodes out there, if there's not a billion codling moths for them to infect, um, you're not going to maintain a population of a billion. Um, the population is going to go from a billion to maybe a few hundred thousand. Um, and then is that going to be enough to affect control down the road? So it really becomes an insecticide. I mean, I really think of, even though they're not regulated as insecticides, the logic behind the way we use nematodes is very much insecticidal. Um, where I have seen them work pretty well um, is in greenhouse production, where you have you know, control over your soil volume and you have the sort of high value space and everything else that sort of makes it pencil out at a commercial scale. Now, all that said, uh, for a backyard grower, um, because you're not talking about treating you know, a full acre probably, um, it probably couldn't hurt, um, but I'm not convinced that it's going to provide um, much more than good sanitation, uh, based just based on the research and the work I've done with them over the years. For codling moth, um, there are other pests. Black vine weevil is one that I, I know in the southern U.S. They've had some pretty good success in nurseries and other, again, higher dollar. Um, commercial production areas, but they, they seem to have had some success using them as a management tool. They're a great tool for thrips and um, fungus gnat control in greenhouses, especially Steiner Nema Feltii. Um, but um, I have yet to see any really good commercial success with them. Um, and, and it's been worked on for at least 30 years. No, that's good to know that, you know, some of these things come up and they may or may not have a fit. But let's talk now about when you think of season-long control of codling moth, what are some cost-effective but also really, you know, effective techniques for, for control of codling moth that growers can employ? So if you're growing uh, for a commercial market um, organically, uh, mating disruption should be really the backbone of your codling moth management program. And there are different mating disruption approaches out there. Um, I know in the Pacific Northwest in the last 15 years, um, puffer technology has gotten really popular. And I think we're also seeing where it doesn't work as well. And there was quite a bit of research done in the, in the early 2000s and around 2010 that showed that for codling moth mating disruption, the number of point sources in the orchard is really important. Because again, you know, to go back to the Chanel number nine uh, um, analogy, what you're really trying to do is take something that is a very uh, rare signal and wash it out. So you want everything to smell like Chanel number nine, then he never knows where she is. And the fact of the matter is, is the best way to do that is to distribute lots of point sources of pheromone throughout the orchard. And, uh, you know, what I typically suggest for organic growers, so, you know, if you're growing, you know, five, 10 plus acres, um, you know, 400 uh, hanging dispensers per acre is tried and true. It works really well. And then the most important thing is to recognize that you don't ever want to stop using it. <laughs> And I've seen this with a lot of growers in different regions where someone will go from having a real problem with coddling moth, they'll introduce mating disruption, um, a couple of years go by and they're like, whoa, I barely catch anything in my traps, my fruit's really clean, 
And they think, well, maybe I can cut back to 200 you know, dispensers, or maybe I can go to a puffer technology or some of the other technology. And then two or three years later, like, hey, why am I seeing codling moth in again? And, and what it really comes down to is pheromones don't work like um, toxic pesticides. Um, they're regulated like pesticides, but they're preventative. And so, you know, when you disrupt mating, you don't see the outcome of that until the subsequent generations. So it doesn't do anything for you in the immediate. It's all about the future. And the fact of the matter is, is you can also think about it. Um, coddling moth mating is sort of almost like a, a gambling proposition where if I'm a male coddling moth and I have two or three nights uh, to fly and look for a mate, I may only have like, I like to think of it as, uh, you know, six or eight dice throws. It's like, I got six or eight chances over my lifetime to find her and, and for us to, you know, have a beautiful evening and make babies. And so the more complete sort of disruption you have, the better chance you have of shutting him down and the fewer of him and her there are, the easier it is to do. Because eventually, you know, if you, and, and this is another one that I think a lot of folks get confused with, with mating disruption is mating disruption works best at low densities of pests. And, and it's, it's very sort of counterintuitive to how most of our pest management technologies work, but it is very much, you know, it's not going to work great if you have a high population because they'll just bumble into each other. Um, whereas if there's only a few of them, like if there's only three or four moths bouncing around an acre orchard and you make it really hard for them to find each other, they're not going to find each other or they're very unlikely to find each other. And then there's no babies and you continue that level of control. For um, sure. So so I think mating disruption is really the cornerstone. And I'm, a, I'm definitely a proponent of hanging dispensers. I recognize that puffers are really labor easy. Um, hanging pheromone is a, is a pain, I've done it. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it can be a hard day, but, and labor's hard to find, but, um, but it works. I'll throw a bit of a curveball at you, Matt, because yeah. we have listeners who are from all over the province and mating disruption might work really well in, in some of their areas. In the Okanagan Similkameen Valleys, where we've got a high uh, level of production, we have sterile insect programs. So we're actually doing SIT. Can you um, maybe comment on how does SIT work? Absolutely. And, um, you know, what are some of the other techniques that are synergistic with that? Yeah, yeah. So sterile insect technique, um, the best example of successful sterile insect technique actually comes from the screw worm, which is this really horrible fly that attacks wounds on cattle and people. Um, and we pretty much eradicated that insect from Texas all the way, I think it's down into Columbia now. And the way it's done, um, screw worm was a great target for this because they have what's called sperm precedence. And basically females essentially mate once, um, it, once they've mated, they've mated, they're not going to mate again. So the idea is, okay, well, what if I, uh, flood the world with a lot of males who don't have good quality sperm or have, they're infertile, um, you'll still mate with them, but then you're locked down. You're not going to be able to get fertile sperm, ergo no offspring, and it shuts the population down. And that's, you know, that, that's sort of the textbook entomological example of sterile insect technique or sterile insect release. So the, the uh, Okanagan program has been going since, I, I think it got started in the late 80s. Um, 
And that's basically using the same thing. Now, codling moth aren't quite as, as good a target as screwworm. They actually will mate, the females will mate multiple times. Um, however, at the end of the day, if you only have a couple of days to mate, um, then, you know, if you can get enough sterile males into the environment, most likely you're mostly going to get, you know, dud loads, so to speak, and you're, and you're not going to be able to make babies. And so that's essentially how it works. And just like mating disruption, it's very much a numbers game. Um, basically, you want um, way more sterile males out there than fertile males out there. So the lower the population, the lower the wild population of fertile insects, the easier it is to keep them low. Um, if you if you get to the point where so if you just start releasing sterile moths in a really heavily infested orchard, it'll be years and years and years before you're able to get that population down. It'll, it'll happen eventually, um, but it'll be very expensive and time consuming. So sterile insect release is great. And there's a lot I know there's a lot of interest in Washington. I've been involved with some research here in Michigan on that. Um, the biggest challenge there is logistics and getting the sterile insects. I also think that. Um, you know, there's been a little bit of talk in the research community that the sterile females may actually also play a role in this. Um, there's, there's traditionally we've been very concerned about releasing both sterile males and females because if you know a sterile male mates with a sterile female, well then he might not mate with a fertile female. However, the opposite's also true. If a if a sterile if a if a fertile male mates with a sterile a sterile female, you still get no offspring, and and he's only going to produce um, one or two um, reproductive loads in his lifetime. He's actually more limited than the female in that way. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a great approach. Now, the reason that we end up releasing both males and females is because to maintain your colony and your mass production facility, you've got to have both, right? Um, and the way we sterilize them is they're treated with gamma uh, radiation. So basically, you know, we fry their gonads or their reproductive tissues. Um, and, and that way you can release both males and females. You're not going to contribute to the population um, at large. Um, but I, I really have come to think that, that those females may play a role in the success of that program. Um, but that, I think there's a lot of research to be done to sort of figure out the mathematics and sort of logical flow of that. Absolutely. Um, so going forward, Matt, with um, both mating disruption and sterile insect technique, you've referred to both of those being really quite successful at low populations. Mm -hmm. For those growers who are facing a very high population, maybe, you know, some isolated pockets of high population of codling moth, what are some of the approaches that they could take to knock those right. down? No, that's a good question. Um, so uh, we really have three so, so now we're going to get into insecticides and the insecticides I'll talk about are all, um, they all have Omri labels um, for, for United States folks. Um, they're all allowed under the National Organic Program. I can't speak towards Canadian certification because I just don't have the knowledge, but from what I'll I do, in. know, it, it's largely similar. I know there are a few things that aren't allowed. Um, there's one product I'll mention that I'm not totally sure is allowed under Canadian standards. Um, so the traditional, well, the traditional, <laughs> the way that we have come to manage codling moth really since, um, oh, about 1920 beginning, well, 1910, beginning with lead arsenate, and then moving on to uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons like DDT, and then organophosphates uh, post-World War II, 
and, and into the 70s and 80s is we use insecticides that intercept the larvae. They either kill the egg or intercept the larvae before it bites into the apple. Once the larvae has entered the apple, it's pretty well protected. It's a really hard target. There's not much you can do to, to hit it. There aren't a lot of natural enemies even that are going to do much to that codling moth. You know, uh, parasitoids aren't able to really get in there. Predators aren't able to get in there. And the same is true if you're applying, you know, a, a pesticide, whatever it's made of. So in the organic world, we do have some pesticides that target those stages. And really there's three. Um, the first of those are horticultural oils. Um, and basically uh, you can use an organically approved horticultural oil. I can't give you the rate off the top of my head without looking at a label. So in Canada, Pure Spray Green is a registered horticultural oil. And okay. in season, we're allowed to use a 1% rate on a volume for volume basis. Okay, fantastic. And basically, you want to time the application of that oil um, when the codling moth is in the egg stage. And we could get into a whole conversation about phenology and how to, how to get there. Um, and use but, a degree day model, perhaps, right. to estimate? With, a, with using a trapping program to establish your biofix. I think, especially with climate change, that's absolutely critical. I, I know there's been some movement away from biofix in the... Uh, Pacific Northwest, and I think it's it's not working well, uh, from what I hear. You know, that's just it's it's changing climate, so you know the models all have to change. Um, but at any rate, so you can use an oil. You apply the oil, and you want to get it out there when you predict that there's going to be sort of the maximum number of eggs from a generation out there. And the way an oil works is it suffocates. So it's not going to, um, any new eggs that are laid on top of it are not going to be managed. It, you need to get the oil on top of the egg. Essentially, you're painting the oil over the top of the egg. Insect eggs have a, a br little breathing apparatus and basically the oil plugs it up and they literally suffocate. They, can't, they can no longer breathe, so the little embryo dies. Um, the next tool, which commercial growers use quite a bit um, and is, has, I've seen it become somewhat available in the United States, I don't know about Canada, is granulosis virus. And so this is a, it's a biological control from the standpoint, well, if you consider viruses living, it's a biological control. And it's a, as far as insecticides go, it's about as beautiful an insecticide there is if you can describe them as beautiful. And, and the reason for that is that it's a virus that attacks codling moth. That's pretty much all it kills. Um, it's not going to have an impact on any you know, lace wings or um, lightning bugs, um, ladybugs, parasitoids, honeybees. It's just not gonna do anything to them because it can't. Um, now, the thing with virus, though, is that to be effective, the larvae has to eat it. it. It's not a contact poison. So a lot of, you know, the conventional compounds kill with touch. Um, it's kind of like a nerve gas almost. Um, this isn't. It's literally a virus. It's not aerosolized like COVID. So they actually have to bite it and eat it. So again, what we suggest for timing is um, at about uh, 200 to 250 degree days on a seven-day interval. Um, and that would be a base 50 Fahrenheit degree day measurement because I, I don't have the centigrade off the top of my head. But basically you wanna coat the outside of that egg with this. And what's gonna happen is that larvae, once the embryos develop to that first instar larvae, it actually has to chew its way out of the egg. And as it chews its way out of the egg, it's gonna pick up one or two virus particles and that's all it takes. 
Um, they'll also, you know, if they, they bite into an apple that's coated with virus, you know, they can get it that way. Um, coddling moth neonates will tend to munch on leaves a little, not in a damaging way, but just sort of a tasty kind of way, like they're checking it out. And they can pick up virus that way as well. But you want to target virus around um, egg hatch. So a little bit later than an oil, because the oil you want to get on well before it, you want to get before the bulk of your eggs start to hatch because you got to suffocate them. With a virus, you want them to hatch. You want them to come out and eat it and die. Um, so virus is great. And what we found at Michigan State University is that my, my good, uh, unfortunately departed now colleague, uh, Dr. Larry Goot um, and John Wise did some of this work. You're better off going with a lower rate more frequently than trying to dump it on there and go at a less frequent rate. So, so what I mean by that is you want to put it on about every seven days, or if you can do it even more frequent than that, that's better. And you'd be better off cutting your application rate and letting yourself make more applications than go the other way. And the reason for this is viruses are very delicate pseudo creatures, since I guess we're not sure if they're alive or not. Um, they break down in sunlight, ultraviolet radiation breaks them down very readily. So it doesn't have a lot of residual staying power. Um, but virus, I mean, mating disruption with virus and oils can be an amazing combination. I mean, and that, that really is the backbone of the organic apple industry in Washington state. I mean, that's why something like 20% of their acreage is um, organic now. Um, you know, before those tools really existed, codling moth was just not going to allow that. Um, and then the last tool that we can talk about, but again, I'm not sure if it's um, allowed under organic rules in Canada, so you all have to check up on that, is um, Entrust or Spinosin. So Spinosin is a naturalite insecticide. So I'm very, I kind of look at Entrust and Spinosin as like the way that some folks describe fire. It's, it's a great, it's a powerful friend, but it can be a very powerful enemy too. Um, and trust or the spinosin, which is the active ingredient, is actually a fermentation product of this wacky bacteria that was discovered out of a the soil out of a sugar plantation in the Caribbean. And so it's not living itself. It's, it's sort of like an antibiotic. Um, if, you, if you think of like a streptomycin or something like that, that's produced by streptomyces um, and that kill bacteria, like the whole Louis Pasteur story, right? Penicillin, they found that penicillium yeast produces penicillin, which kills, I think, gram-negative bacteria. And trust is kind of like that, or spinosin is kind of like that. Now, the, the, the thing you want to be aware of with Entrust, though, is that it is a neurotoxin. So um, its mode of action, or the way it actually kills insects, is not as biological as, say, granulosis virus. It actually interferes with their nervous system. And it interferes with a sort of basal enough level of nervous system that it has very broad activity. So it will definitely kill honeybees. It will definitely kill parasitoids. It kills a lot of chewing predators as well. Um, some work that I was involved with at Washington State back in the early 2000s, um, basically what we saw was that lacewing larvae were about the only predator that we didn't see really knocked down by entrust, probably because they feed through sort of jabby stabber pinchers. Um, so they're not getting exposed to it. So the other thing to know about entrust is that while it's wet, so after you first apply it, it has pretty good contact efficacy. It actually um, will kill um, insects just by them touching it. 
once it dries down, it becomes largely a stomach poison. Um, so just like the virus, it has to be eaten. And that's something that's important to think about when you're, you're thinking about windows of application, basically. So for codling moth, you'd wanna put an entrust on just a little bit later timing than you would a virus, because at this point, you're really trying to intercept the larvae as it's leaving the egg, but this is also gonna have better activity on larvae that are crawling across leaves or, or on fruit. But again, um, I really, I, I look at entrust as sort of like the, I like to think of it and, and the growers I work with increasingly think of it as this is my ace in the hole. This is what I'm gonna use for the things that I have no other options for um, because there's a, there is an organic ecological cost for applying it. Um, I have seen you know, some uh, oyster shell scale in Michigan orchards where we're pretty sure it's from, you know, maybe we went a little heavy on the entrust, we knocked down parasitoids that would have kept that secondary pest under control and it's come back. So I, it's absolutely a tool that I think should be kept in the toolbox and, it, and it's a very valuable tool, but it's a very powerful tool. So in, in an organic system, it needs to be treated um, carefully. Um, not, I'm not trying to scare anyone away from it necessarily, but it, it is the reason it works so well is that it is very similar to the, you know, petrochemical based neurotoxins that, you know, are the mainstay frontline products used in conventional uh, tree fruit production. Now, I'm glad you gave that context, Matt, because as you say, it really is being the ace in the hole super effective, but a lot of other ecological costs. And it's important to keep that in mind that a, a good integrated pest management program doesn't rely on just a single application or multiple applications of a single product. We need to be thinking about timing, as you mentioned, we need to be thinking about cultural control and other aspects of that IPM program. And so for our listeners, Matt talked about the three uh, insecticide products that could be used, uh, horticultural oil, which in Canada, pure spray green is registered at a 1% rate. The codling moth granulovirus, which again, here in Canada, the Virusoft product is registered and, and available, and the Spinosin product, uh, which is under the trade name uh, Intrust. So those are all allowed under our production systems. But as usual, the caveat, just double check everything with your certification body before application. There is a caveat for oil that um, folks in the Okanagan Valley probably wouldn't run into this because it's very similar to Eastern Washington production. But if you're on the other side of the rain shadow, it's something you probably want to think about is that um, if you mix oil and sulfur, you get phytotoxicity. Um, so if you are going to use horticultural oils as part of your codling moth program and you have uh, and you're managing apple scab, which is really honestly for us in Michigan, that's the big pest that drives everything. Um, and sulfur is one of our major organic tools for it. If you make an oil application within, within less than 14 days of a sulfur application, you have a pretty good chance of seeing some defoliation. So, so um, you know, if you're not using sulfur as a disease management tool, um, you don't really have to worry about this. But if you are using sulfur, you want to make sure there's at least 14 days between your last sulfur application and using, say, a 1% oil solution. And that's a really good point, Matt, and it definitely also has implications in terms of temperature and where we're at with relative humidity. And I'm glad you brought it up because um, this year I did some work in cherries where we looked at sulfur applications followed by a horticultural oil. And we found we were able to shorten the interval to seven days. Oh. But, you know, again, timing and 
weather conditions and climate are all part of that. So with the pure spray green, it's a relatively clean and pure oil. So growers might find that that allows for some shortening of intervals, but there's a lot of other products out there that fall in that hoard oil category that we want to be careful of. So just be mindful of that growers, because we certainly use a lot of sulfur, lime sulfur in our uh, programs. So Matt, one thing that we didn't cover in our conversation thus far is really around degree day models and the use of trapping for monitoring populations of codling moth. Can you touch on that topic, please? Absolutely. Um, so here in Michigan, um, we use a degree day model through our Enviro weather system. And uh, for your listeners who aren't um, familiar with de degree days, I might explain those quickly first. So yeah, please do. The, the first thing that one of the things that I, that I hope anyone I talk to about insects gets for me is that insects don't experience time like we do. And, and I mean, it's, it's uh, I can't really think about that without having my mind blown repeatedly. But the reality is, is that insects, just like plants, are cold blooded. So to, dr to uh, drive their metabolisms forward, they're actually dependent on environmental heat. So we're warm blooded. So the example I like to use is if, if we had twins and we did a really cruel experiment where we separated them at birth and we put one say in Florida and one say in Saskatchewan and um, we gave them access to ready food so they could drive their metabolism and everything. And if we checked in at them, in with them at say age five, age 10, age 40, they're probably going to be pretty similar in terms of development and size and everything, because we um, are able to, to generate our own heat to keep our biochemical processes moving forward. Insects can't do that. So really for an insect, if I take the same experiment and I take two identical cloned insects and I put one in Florida and one in Saskatchewan, one's going to develop really, really fast. And one of them is going to take a long time to develop because if it's cold, they can't drive their biochemistry. If they can't drive their biochemistry, they can't produce new cells. If they can't produce new cells, they can't grow. It's really as simple as that. So the beautiful thing about this is that it means we can predict um, the development of individuals and also populations of insects. And this is where the degree day comes in. The degree day is a very simple concept that lets us sort of bridge this issue that insects experience time as a function of temperature, hence the degree day. So the simplest way to calculate a degree day is really you only need three things for a given day. You need the maximum temperature, you need the minimum temperature, and then you need the lower developmental threshold of the organism that you're trying to model. So for instance, for codling moth, um, the lower developmental threshold is around 50 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which I believe is about 15 degrees centigrade. So the way I would, I'm going to use Fahrenheit just because it's, it's my native, <laughs> but no problem. calculate this in an example is say I had a warm day of where I had hundred degrees Fahrenheit as a maximum. And I had a 50 degree Fahrenheit as a minimum. So I had a really cool evening. I would average those two numbers. So I add them together, divide by two, that gives me 75. And then I subtract that developmental threshold from it. And that gives me the degree days that that organism would have accumulated on that day. So that codling moth would have accumulated 25 degree days in that day. Now we can do studies in the laboratory with codling moth from different regions of the world and look at 
their rate of development at different temperatures, and we can use that to work out that developmental threshold. So the beautiful thing about this is that if I know that, okay, moths are flying, and I know it takes so many degree days before they start laying eggs, I can predict when those eggs are gonna be out there. And if I know how long it takes the eggs to develop to that first larval stage, I know how long they're gonna be out there. And then I can know how long the larvae are out there. And then I can probably even predict when the next generation of moths is likely to fly. And so that's the basis of, of degree day based phenological modeling. Um, now, it's important to note that your model is only as good as the data you use to drive it. And I bring that up because A, um, given climate change, I'm pretty convinced that we probably are, in North America, we probably need to start recalibrating our phenological models for a lot of our insect species um, because there's, they're experiencing a very different environment and it's changing really quickly. And the way they respond to temperature is probably changing a little bit. And if our model is based off, say, circa 1970s or 1960s populations of codling moth that experienced a very different climate, they may not quite line up so well. And so that's something that I think is, is really important. I'll get off my hobby horse on that now. Um, so the other piece that we use in Michigan um, to model phenology is a so-called biofix. And the idea behind a biofix is that it's simply a biological indicator that tells you, okay, I should turn this model on and start accumulating degree days based on whatever the threshold temperature for the critter I'm trying to model is. So for codling moth, uh, what we say is the first consistent trap catch. And for us, what that means is if you go say three days in a row and you catch a codling moth three days in a row, that third day, that's when you wanna start your degree, degree day model. The reason why we don't use the first moth is because um, your orchards are full of little microclimates. And so a particular codling moth that's maybe it's on a south face with a lot of exposure might have accumulated more degree days than the codling moth that are in the interior of the orchard where it's shadier and cooler. And if you if you start your model around that early, that early moth, um, that's great for that early moth but all those other moths are gonna just be a little bit off in your model. So you're always gonna be you know, making um, applications or making management decisions, maybe just a little too early. So we go with that. I know that the DAS system out in Washington um, uses a biofixless model. And I think that, you know, I think that model was pretty good, um, but I'm really concerned that in this era of climate change, the baseline assumptions of that model are no longer valid um, because we're accumulating degree days at different times of year and at different rates than we were in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, which was the data that was used to develop those biofixless models. So me personally, I always suggest to growers that they use a biofix. And that doesn't mean you couldn't still use the, the DAS system, for instance, but you wanna set your biofix with moths that you caught in your orchard in your local environment. Because again, your phenological model is as good as the data you put into it. So weather data that you collect at your orchard is way better than weather data that was collected 20 miles or 20 kilometers away, well, 20 miles or 30 or more, away, right? Um, or more, right? I mean, if you're remote. Um, and again, a biofix that you get out of your orchard or your orchard block is going to be a really good indicator for your orchard block. Might not work for your neighbor. Um, but it's going to work for you. And so, you know, all, I guess the way you can think of it is all phenology is local. 
Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you said that, Matt, because it is important as much as we want to rely on these tools like the DAS system, which we now have implemented into British Columbia's Okanagan and Similkameen regions, it doesn't replace going out to the orchard and doing your own monitoring. So growers can very easily hang a trap and catch adult codling moth and set that biofix date for themselves and then run the model from there and I think you're absolutely bang on that you know we're lucky to have a, a weather network but you still need to be making those on-site observations and especially if you are in a place where you might have you know a different facing slope and aspect and sunlight and all of those pieces that you just discussed are going to affect uh, the emergence of the codling moth from diapause. Absolutely. Absolutely. And their development from eggs on. So Matt, when it comes to determining biofix, we talked about using a trap. What is the value of trapping and how would you use them in an orchard? That's a great question. So um, the value of trapping, uh, simply put, is it gives you that critical local information about what's happening in your orchard. Um, and you can't really get that in, in any other way. You have to go into your orchard and observe it. And traps are nice because they do the work for you. You know, you don't have to actually go out there and try to shake codling moth out of a tree. Um, the males will come to the female sex pheromone. Um, and, you know, some females may come to some of the other plant pheromone lures that are out there as well. And so the trap does the work for you. Um, the downside of traps is that they're not great at actually estimating true densities. Um, they kind of give you a relative, you know, and, and, and that relative density, the more you trap over time, the more useful that's going to become. So, you know, it might be that for some folks, five coddling moth is way more than they ever wanted to see. And for other people, it's no 25 is where I know I have a real problem, but that's again, going to be a very local consideration, but using traps is, is can be fairly nuanced. Um, so you want to check your traps as often as you can. You want to put out as many traps as you can. Now, I realize that it's easy for someone who's not actually running the trapping line to say that. But certainly, you know, if you can keep at least a trap, certainly to a 10 acre block, better to a five acre block, that's a good idea. You don't want to put your traps on the edge of an orchard necessarily, because the microclimate and the conditions at the edge of the orchard are very different than what's going on in the interior of your orchard. And that's where the bulk of your fruit's being grown. That's where the bulk of the insect populations are grown. For codling moth, what we typically suggest in Michigan is that you put the trap in the upper third of your canopy, uh, which you know, just, just variable with how tall your canopy is. If you've got a, a short trellis system, it's going to be much lower than if you've got a traditional tree. So you want to put that trap up in the canopy. Um, you want to keep the openings of the trap unoccluded by branches. So even if you have to do a little bit of pruning, um, you want to just make sure that there aren't a bunch of branches sitting in front of that trap. And that's important for two reasons. The first is, is that you want it just like setting a trap for a, you know, a, a woodchuck or a, you know, a mouse or something. You want them to very easily get into the trap so that they can't get out of it, right? Um, the other issue is, is that it, you want the pheromones that you have on the pheromone lures to have an easy time of working out of the trap. I mean, if you have a lot of branches and things in front of that, that's going to interfere with the air currents and the natural sort of diffusion of that of that lure out, out of the trap to draw the moths in. The final thing to think about is what lure you use. Um, 
If you're using a Delta trap, they're pretty much all the same. Follow the manufacturer instructions, um, the little tabs that get folded in. We found that you want those folded in. Those actually help retain insects. I change your sticky cards on a regular basis and you're pretty much golden. But you do need to think about your lure. If you're using mating disruption, you want to use a lure that is much more potent than if you're not. And the reason for that is the sex pheromones that we use to attract male moths to these traps for monitoring purposes are the same ones that the females produce. They're the same ones in mating disruption. So you're actually disrupting your trap with your mating disruption. So um, the, a common lure that we use in the United States is called an L2 sold by, by Tracy. That's kind of one of my standards. That's the one we use in non-disrupted orchards. Um, we use one called a 10X, which is 10 times the concentration in disrupted orchards, or in some cases we'll use a higher dose pheromone plus plant caramone. So there's one that's a codling moth uh, plus a pear ester. There's a, there's a variety of products out there. But when you work with your pest consultant, or if you're working directly with an IPM um, provider who's selling you traps, let them know, hey, I'm using mating disruption. What lures do you have that are designed for monitoring under those conditions? Because if you use a sort of a standard lure for non-mating disruption in a mating disrupted orchard, you're likely to underestimate um, your, your population. And, and you may just never catch any moths, which means it's going to make it hard to find biofix and do all those wonderful things. Thanks a lot, Matt. And that was a great description of using traps. And I think, again, for our listeners, if you're a grower in the Okanagan and Similkameen, you're very fortunate in that the sterile insect release program does the trapping for you and provides that data on a weekly basis on their online system. However, if you're outside of the region, uh, I think Matt's just given you a really good primer on how to use traps for yourselves. And it is definitely encouraged and is one of the best tools out there to get a sense of what's going on. So Matt, I'd love to talk to you all day. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground today. There's a ton of topics uh, that relate to codling moth management and and you certainly have a wealth of experience so I thank you very much for sharing that with us and I'm almost feeling a bit guilty I kind of think we might have well we maybe should have given the listeners fair warning about the graphic descriptions of codling moth sex that we (laughs) (laughs) but um, pretty pretty tame and g-rated but yeah (laughs) <laughs> no, I thought you did a very good job. And they missed of, out on all the hand gestures. So, you know, they, they did, which I actually really enjoyed the hand gestures. So for those uh, listeners, you'll have to just uh, imagine what Matt was doing in the background here. <laughs> but anyways, no, thank you so much. Uh, this was such a pleasure to talk to you. And um, Dr. Matt uh, Grieship from Michigan State University, we've really appreciated your time today. And thanks for sharing your expertise with our organic growers in British Columbia. Well, thank you, Molly. I really appreciate the chance to share. And uh, really, the pleasure was mine. I, I love talking about what I study and do for a living. So um, for your listeners, um, if you have specific questions, um, easy to find. Um, and, and please, I'll, if, if I can help you, I will. If I can't, I'll tell you I can't. We really appreciate that. So thanks again, Matt. Uh, we'll sign off of the uh, podcast here and I hope you have a really great evening. All right, you too. Thank you. All right. I hope you like that, everyone. We call that episode one for the fruit nerds. Matt, Molly, thank you so much for that contribution to the series. There's not much more to say, so we'll finish things off with my four-year-old son, Levon, 
reciting clauses from the Canadian Organic Standards General Principles and Management Document. 8.1.3 Mechanical, physical, or biological processes such as fermentation and smoking are permitted. 